So far as uh, we've been moving through a series that's looking at the core values that our church recently adopted, we have covered four of the six core values. Um, Our P-cubed core values, prayer, community, unity, the Bible, evangelism, and discipleship. We've talked about prayer. We've talked about community. We've talked about the Bible, evangelism, and we are left with only two more core values to discuss. Today, we'll be talking about one of those two. Today, we'll be talking about discipleship. What does it mean for us as a church to say that we value discipleship? And um, what does it look like in our church to value discipleship? Now, one of the things that kind of stands out to me is when we originally went through this process of identifying these core values, it was way back in January. So if you want to remember how we got to where we're at, you really have to stretch your memory all the way back to January when we started this conversation. What we came up with, or the work that we did as a church in coming up with these, was looking at the Great Commission, the Great Commandment, and the example of the early church in Acts, so that we could look at what those core values look like, or look come from, and what our core values should be. I want to take us back this morning to where we were at in January in looking at the great commandment that Jesus gave to the disciples after he was resurrected. This isn't our sermon text this morning, but I do want to look at it before we can really move on and and look at where this emphasis or this core value of discipleship comes from. The great commission when given by Jesus oftentimes is used as a text that, that emphasizes and kind of calls us to being missional, to being missions-minded. And while that is a part of the text, I think the emphasis that we find in the Great Commission is not so much on missions as it is on equipping. If you would, let's look at it. Matthew 28, verse 19, the Bible says, "'Go therefore and make disciples.'" Of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Notice the emphasis on the text is to make disciples, to teach others, to observe all that Jesus has commanded them. The emphasis is only in part on missions, but the bigger picture is discipleship or equipping. In many cases, I think churches have fallen prey to this idea that baptism is the end of the road, that we celebrate whenever people come forward and they they make a confession of faith and they say that they're doing this the first time and they want to acknowledge this publicly with their community and specifically with their church, and they want to submit to a biblical baptism, this picture of being buried with Christ and being raised in new life in His victory. And the church celebrates and cheers. And then what? The biblical mandate doesn't stop at baptism. It goes on. 
The Great Commission says, Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. The real work and ministry of the church is not just to be missional, to see new people come to faith. But the real work of the church is to equip the saints to grow in maturity in their faith. That's really what we're here to do. When we think about this priority, this value or this emphasis, there's some questions we need to ask ourselves. How am I being equipped? How have I been being equipped? Is my worship genuine in such a way that I am continually growing in my faith? Or did I get up for the baptism and did I sit back and not grow? Second question is not just me focused. It's not how have I been discipled, but it's how am I discipling others? How am I teaching others? How am I involved in this discipleship process? Over the past several weeks, as we've been looking at our core values, we've been going through the book of Colossians. Today, I want to stay in Colossians where we've seen Paul and Timothy's passion and their zealousness to reach these strangers who have recently come to faith, who have formed in church in Colossae, their passion and their zeal to see these saints equipped growing, rooted, and, and, and grow, pushing onward towards maturity in their faith. We've looked at a couple of things in this book so far. We've talked a lot about context. We've looked at some warnings that Paul provided. But I'm actually moving backwards from last week. We're going to be in Tim, um, sorry, Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. And we'll be looking from verse 6 all the way to verse six, 15 this morning. At Paul's purpose, what he's really trying to say in this letter. What I think we find in this passage is a clear picture of what discipleship actually looks like. A clear picture of what it means to avoid false teachers. Because it's not so much about avoiding false teachers or false um, deceptions or worldly philosophies as it is actually growing in the real truth of the Bible. Paul's admonitions and cautions have come down to one biblical principle and one value that we should be making disciples, teaching the saints in Colossae to observe what Jesus has commanded, instructing them and guiding them to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That is the definition of discipleship. To be discipled means to be conformed to the image of Jesus. And this is what Paul's encouraging the strangers in Colossae to do. If you would turn with me this morning to our text, we'll be looking at this clear instruction from Paul and Timothy, and uh, in it, we'll be able to see just how Paul aims to accomplish this task of encouraging the strangers to be discipled, to be conformed to the image of God's Son. 
what we see is Paul's encouragement that they would be abiding in Christ. As we read this morning, uh, I do want to invite you to, if you have trouble focusing, count how many times we read the phrase, in him or with him. How many times does that appear in this passage? The Bible says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 6, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness and deity the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing, triumphing, triumphing over them in him. Paul's writing to the Colossian believers, as we've discussed previously, because he desires to find them in good order. Our text this morning begins with the word, therefore. A good Bible study practice, anytime you run across this phrase, therefore, you should ask yourself, ready for it? What is it there for? So we have to look at the context. If we go up what we've studied before, in verse 5, Paul says that he is absent. He's not with the believers right now, but he wants to see them in good order and the firmness of their faith in Christ. So he provides this encouragement. As you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Walk in him. Be rooted and built up in him and be established in the faith. All of these instructions for becoming matured believers are clarified with a method that the believer should follow to do them. Here's what I mean by that. All of these instructions have with them the instruction manual in two words. In him. In him. What does that mean to be found in Christ? What's this instruction for discipleship that we should be found in Him? That we should walk in our faith in Him. That we should be rooted and built up in Him. This concept is the same concept that Jesus taught about 
in John chapter 15 when he was teaching about the vine and the branches. When Jesus taught the disciples, I am the vine and you are the branches. Without me, you can do nothing. You're familiar with this, right? He said, abide in me and I will abide in you. What does it mean to abide in Christ? This teaching that the Christian believers in Colossae can be found in Christ. The warning that we find in verse 8, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it this morning because we discussed it in so much detail last week in looking at verses 16 through 23. But this warning in verse 8 gives us clarity of what Jesus is telling us to do. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. We could almost summarize this entire warning by just taking out everything that's in the, in the, in the middle. See to it that no one takes you captive by distracting you with things that are not in Christ. See, what Paul's writing about, this emphasis on being found in him and abiding in Christ, it's really an emphasis to recognize and live out the supremacy of Christ as the Lord of everything. Not just the Lord of everything in this world, but the Lord of our salvation and the Lord of our faith. He gives us this instruction. Just as you received Christ, walk in Him. How did we receive Christ to begin with? By faith. This is what Paul writes to the Ephesian church in Ephesians chapter 2, isn't it? By faith you've been saved. Not of your own works or your own doing, but through faith you have been saved. I think that's the Derek Brimmer translation of Ephesians 2.8. Just as you received Him by faith, so walk in Him. As a Christian, you want to push onward to spiritual maturity and grow deeper in your enlightenment and your understanding and revelation of God. That's why we're here this morning, isn't it? I think you came here this morning because you want to grow deeper in your faith and you recognize that... The church is what Jesus has given authority to on earth to represent His kingdom. This is the outpost of God's kingdom here on earth as we are resident aliens. And you came here this morning because you want to grow deeper. You want to be a disciple because we value as a church discipleship. How are we going to do that? This exact same way that we started this walk. By faith, we will walk in Him. This warning that Paul provides, one component of it that we have not talked about. We've talked about being distracted by earthly philosophies and these other things, but I think there's something else buried here in verse 8, and that is that there's a second lie that the enemy presents. Not only is there this you know, major issue are we going to adopt these worldly philosophies, these earthly, uh, I can't, all the elemental spirits of this world? 
Are we going to adopt these things and allow them to muddle our understanding of what genuine faith is? Or are we going to hold true to abiding in Christ? Here's the second deceit. When these questions start coming up about whether Jesus is supreme and sufficient, the natural tendency is to say, this question's too complicated, this question's theological, this is for people who study theology to try and figure out. This is something that I don't need to worry or contend with within myself. That's the second lie. This is the argument that's been happening since the church was originally formed. One of the first lies present in the church was whether or not Jesus was sufficient. We've talked about the Gnostics and what they're presenting to the church in Colossae, that there's a special method that they can go through in order to arrive at spiritual enlightenment when we don't need anything other than Christ. All we need to do is to commit ourselves to walk in Him. Paul presents the argument here that Christ, in Him, the whole fullness of the deity dwells. He's making the case, and a simple statement here clearly presents that Jesus is 100% God. 100% God. And here's where the deity of Christ really starts to show up, because this is the argument. Is Jesus like God, or is Jesus God? Is he of a similar substance or is he the same substance? He is the same substance. But why does it matter to us? I'm not a theologian. I'm not well studied. I'm not. I'm a simple disciple. Why do I need to grapple with this question? Why do I need to resolve this question within myself and in my faith that I might be able to grow in my spiritual maturity? The answer is in the question, folks. Because by answering it and resolving it in yourself, you'll be able to grow in your spiritual maturing and understanding of these things. Anything else is a distraction. That's our second lie. These theological questions do matter. They matter for all of us. They're not puffed up nonsense that Bible students like to sit around and talk about. They're things of essential value to the church. In maturing in Christ, we have to be able to grapple with these things. So I would just ask this morning that you care about these theological questions. And you realize how significant they are to our faith. Now, it seems simple that walking in Him as you received Him, of course, means by faith. And so we walk in Him by faith, being rooted in Him, firmly grounded and our solid understanding, being built up in Him, being built up to a greater purpose and understanding for more spiritual discernment, being established in Him, by the faith that we originally had in Him. Not only do we have to engage our minds to understand the deity and the sacrifice of Jesus, but for true discipleship, we have to engage our hearts. I actually preached on verses 6 and 7 four weeks ago. 
Um, and so I don't want to spend too much time talking about what this means to walk in him, to be built up in him. But I want to look at something that I neglected a couple of weeks ago. This phrase found at the end of verse 7 that says, abounding in thanksgiving. Not only do we need to engage our minds to understand the theological concepts and components that are the foundation of our faith, the deity of Jesus, we also have to engage our hearts to understand the sacrifice that Jesus provided for us. That we have to abound in thanksgiving. I pray earnestly that this short explanation of how to become conformed to the image of Jesus has been somewhat clear. I want to talk about why it's so important that we do this, why we engage our minds and why we engage our hearts. So look at how Jesus is described, how the person of Jesus is described dwelling in the same fashion that, that Paul does in this passage. First, we'll look at verse 10. I'm sorry, verse 9, where we find that Jesus is the whole fullness of the deity in bodily form. Jesus is 100% God, and he's 100% man. Why does it matter If we keep reading into verse 10, we find that you have been filled with him who is the head of all rule and all authority. The implications of this are gigantic. They're enormous. Christians have been filled with the whole fullness of Jesus. The Holy Spirit coming to dwell within Christians gives us all that we need to be able to push onward to spiritual maturity because the Holy Spirit that ministers to us, the same Spirit of God that is fully in Jesus, is able to provide for us a path to spiritual discipleship, being made, uh, being made complete. What's even more important is this authority that is attributed to Jesus. If you would, skim down to verse 15. Paul, in talking about the crucifixion, the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, says that Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Verse 9 said that Jesus had the whole authority of God, that he in fact was the full authority. But he submitted himself to the powers and authorities of the world and ultimately triumphs over them, putting those subordinate authorities to open shame in his resurrection. For us then, because of verse 10, which says that the fullness of God dwells within us, not that we are God, but let me just read the Bible, that you have been filled in him, who is the head and the rule of all authority, also have the same triumphing power to triumph over ultimate death. This concept of abiding in Christ is Humongous. It comes down to this. 
Spiritual discipleship, any sort of discipleship, being conformed to the image of God's Son is it's what we're here for. Being conformed to the image of God's Son, it comes from living a life in Christ, abiding in Him, seeking understanding of his ways and of his teachings, being taught to be able to obey everything that Jesus commanded us. It, it, it is the provision of our life to be able to grow in him, to be rooted in him, to be built up in him. Abiding in Christ means identifying with him, not so that we can see more of ourselves in Jesus but so that we can see more of Jesus in our lives, that we can be conformed to what he has for us, to be filled with him. Paul writes that you have been circumcised with a circumcision that is not of this world. And what he's talking about here is this picture. Again, the context helps us to understand why he would make reference to a medical procedure. These are not Jewish people. Part of the Gnostics were saying it, he also had the, the Judaizers who were telling them that they needed to, in order to grow in their spiritual maturity, had to conform to the ways of Judaism in the past. Paul writes that you've been baptized, a symbol of being cut off from the world to, to be made God's people, that you have been circumcised as Christians and believers in Christ, that you've been given, you've been made holy, you've been separated from from the rest of the world in Christ because you identified with him. And this is the picture of baptism that we see so clearly. We ask, what is baptism? And this is it. It is a picture of being found in Christ. Jesus' sacrifice, we're familiar with the Easter story. Jesus came fully God, lived on this world, submitted himself to the earthly powers that he would one day be crucified, put up on a cross. The ultimate, a gruesome sacrifice that he would be buried so that on the third day he would rise again in triumphant victory. When we are found in Christ, the same picture exists within us. The picture of baptism is one that the person being baptized is submerged underwater as if buried in the ground like Christ. They've identified with his burial. What have they, they identified with his burial in? Simply that they have identified with a burial and that their death to the world. They're no longer a creature that exists in this world. They're no longer subjected to the earthly powers of this world. They're dead to their sin that once held them in bondage and in captivity, and they are buried in Christ. Of course, we don't hold them underwater too long. We eventually bring them back up. This is a picture of Jesus' triumphal resurrection on the third day whenever he conquered death once and for all that they could be raised in triumphant victory. 
Because they have not just died to the powers and the spirits of this world, but they've also been raised into new life in Christ. The root of this new life always begins with Jesus. It can only begin with Jesus. He's the source of all life after death. Because this triumphant victory that He gave us is ultimately this picture. Not just a picture... uh, I'm sorry. I'm getting my words twisted. Our baptism is a picture of the very real death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Because in His resurrection, He was able to provide for us victory in new life. In His crucifixion, said that it was gruesome. And if you ever spent any time looking at what crucifixion actually was by the time, by Jesus's time, the Romans had perfected how to kill a person. It began, crucifixion began in the Babylonian era, and it took almost 600 years to perfect what it means to actually kill a person. It's truly a gruesome way to die. It was a humiliating way to die because it didn't just begin on the cross, but it began with the flogging. The whole purpose was to belittle and trivialize who a person was leading up to a painful, grueling death. Jesus's submission to this, even though he had all the authority that he needed to escape it, his submission to the rulers and authorities of this world was God taking all the legal demands of sin that separate us from Him and nailing it onto the cross in Jesus' body. Setting it on the cross forever. And in identifying with Christ, we're able to see our sins nailed onto the cross in Him. Truly, discipleship is understanding more and more every day what it means to abide in Christ. It's identifying with Him in such a way that daily we are able to see ourselves dying to the world, ourselves dying to the sinful passions that we have, and ourselves being born into new life. When I think about discipleship, I'm frustrated in some ways because I, I, I've said before, I think discipleship has become a, um, at least in this decade, a buzzword within the church that we need to push onward for discipleship, that we need to uh, find new ways to disciple believers, that we need to be engaged in discipleship. And no one's really done a good job of defining what discipleship is. And those who have attempted to do that, I think, have confused it with programs within the church. They've contextualized it to the point that discipleship just means doing what we've been doing all along. Discipleship is not Sunday school. Discipleship is not a Sunday morning preaching ministry. Discipleship is not a program that we put on like Vacation Bible School. Discipleship is investing in people. It is relational. Like the relationship that a father has with his children. It is teaching them. 
how to navigate a world that they don't belong to. Because when a Christian submits themselves to identifying with Christ, they no longer belong on planet Earth. Peter writes, you are resident aliens, illegal immigrants living on earth. You don't belong here. You are resident aliens that now belong to the kingdom of God. And you have to figure out how to live here. Because the world has an entire culture that you don't belong to. You have a culture that's from heaven and you have to learn how to be a part of that culture. Discipleship is teaching a Christian how to engage in a world that they don't belong in. Teaching them to grow in their faith relationally. Parents often talk about disciplining their children and the importance that discipline has on raising godly children. But listen, folks, the same word that we get this discipline from is the same word that disciple comes from. It does not mean just to chastise, but it means to teach and instruct. All Christians need to be involved in this, and especially within our church. I think at the core of the church's ability to, to um, succeed and to accomplish the great commission that we looked at in our introduction this morning, at the core of it is all the members of the church have to be involved in discipleship. They have to be involved in a two-way street. They have to be involved in being discipled, intentionally being poured into by somebody who has walked before them and understands how to navigate a world that they don't belong to. And they have to be involved in teaching someone who is in the faith, who they are walking in front of, teaching them how to navigate a world that they do not belong to. It has to be a priority. And it starts with caring about people. We're not talking about strangers, but we're talking about the people that we sit with, that we share a pew with. We're talking about the people that we worship with. It's not something that happens on a program or on a schedule one day a week. It's something that happens every day of our lives. When you have a genuine relationship with somebody and they're able to come to you with a phone call, a text message, or a stop-by visit and say, this is what happened at work today and I don't know how to navigate it. When I talk about discipleship, if I'm honest, if we are honest, do we have those kinds of relationships in, the, in this church? Do we have relationships that are pushing people onward to maturity or are we waiting for the Apostle Paul to write us a letter to teach us how to grow in faith? Christ has given us the instruction book here. We need people in our lives to teach us how to abide in it. Abiding in Christ means abiding in His Word and conforming to His teachings. I'm wrapping up here because I don't think I have anything else to say on this. I don't know how to overemphasize how important discipleship is. But this, of all of the values that we have in our church, might be the most important. It may have been a boring sermon this morning as we looked at the text, but I can't tell you how burdensome it is when I think about what discipleship actually means for the church. Because I'm a 27-year-old pastor, and I don't know what I'm doing. 
but I can tell you that I've been discipled. Brother Wade poured into me. He invested in me more than any other man has ever invested in me in my entire life. I've had mentors. I've paid mentors. At, well, Walmart's paid mentors for me. But <laughs> I've paid mentors, and Brother Wade invested in me more than any of those paid people. Brother George Redden, former pastor of this church, poured into me. Because I told Brother Wade, I love you and I want to learn how to study the Bible like you. But, but you're very task-driven. I want Brother George to teach me how to care for people. And Brother George discipled me. Another friend of a different church, Brother Michael Battenfield, poured into me. We sat down for coffee every Tuesday. He'd send me text. He still sends me text messages. And I'm telling you all this because here's the reality. We moved down to Greenwood in September, and I don't have anyone pouring into me anymore. Instead, I've got a group of people looking at me like I'm supposed to be the one pouring into them, and I'm pouring my heart out. And here's what you need to know. It's never going to be good enough because you have to be pouring into each other. And if you're not doing that, you're not being the church. If you're not doing that, this is a social club. We have to abide in Christ. We have to find ourselves in Him. And here's the invitation. If you have never done that in your life, I'm being so serious right now. If you've never done that in your life, it's that simple that you identify with the victory that he had on the cross. I want to welcome you. We'll have a song of invitation. I want you to think about that. Have you identified with him? And if you have, are you continuing to identify with him? Before we sing this song, I just want to call us to prayer really fast. Our Father in heaven, I thank you for the words that you've given us. I thank you for the ministry of Paul and Timothy and the letter that they wrote to the church in Colossae. God, I ask that you would use your Holy Spirit to help explain to us the truths that we find in your word. God, I pray that you would help us to reflect on the message that you've had us bring this morning. God, I ask that you would help us to conform to the image of your Son. Help us to know how we can surrender ourselves, that we could die to this world more each day, and that we could recognize and identify ourselves in the life that you provide us in your resurrection. God, I thank you for everyone that's here this morning. And I pray for each and every heart, God, just that you would be in the business and in the work of softening their hearts and of molding their hearts to an image that reflects you. In Jesus' heavenly name I pray, amen. Would you stand with us as we